We're going to open the scriptures again at the book of Jude and continue in our series. And uh, those who were here last week will remember that we saw in Jude's introduction that he gave us some clear guidelines on how we should think about ourselves. We take that example from Jude himself because in his introduction he chose not to name drop like we might do so. And he did that by calling Jesus, well, because he could have rightly called Jesus his half-brother, but he chose not to. But rather, he chose to call himself a bond-slave of Jesus Christ. And so um, that speaks volumes about what Jude thought of himself, about himself, and how he identified himself with his saviour, Jesus Christ. And then Jude reminded us of what a real Christian is from God's perspective. And we need to think from God's perspective, don't we? I often pull myself up and I often know that too often we think from a human perspective and as believers we need to go to a higher level and to start with God and to think from God's perspective. And uh, Jude reminded us of this when he called those whom he is writing to and uh, which includes us ourselves here this morning and said that we're the, call, we're the called ones or called by God, we're beloved by God and we're kept by God. What a tremendous encouragement that is for the believer to be called, beloved and kept by God Almighty himself. So we're not only, we're divinely called, not only your family, which we are, and that's wonderful and that's good. And not only into the church, I'm talking the church total, and if we want to take it further, into the church local, but we're also called into God's great redemptive mission in the world. Sometimes we don't think about that. We isolate ourselves and put ourselves in a little box, in our own little world, in our own little city, our own little home, in our own little workplace, and we become very exclusive. But God has included us as servants in his great redemptive mission in the world. And so before Jude gets into the meaty matter of this letter, he pronounces, as we looked at, that trio of wonderful blessings. He said, May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. It's a benediction right at the beginning of his letter, before he even starts, reminding us of all we need and what we ought to want and desire as believers. You see, it's not more stuff, it's not more influence, it's not more prestige or more money or status that we need and ought to want. But we need as believers and ought to want more of God's mercy, more of his peace and more of his love an amazing trilogy of blessings that God gives abundantly and that's what we need and want. So even in the greeting and the blessing, Judas taught us so much. Now in verses 3 and 4, he is getting into the real substance and heart of his letter. But as we read these verses in a minute, we will see that Jude's original reason 
for writing this letter was diverted to another more pressing or urgent need that he saw on the landscape of his day. He tells us that he wanted to write about one thing, but he's got to write about another because of the circumstances that the congregation that he was writing to found itself in. So that brings us to the text. And once again, because we've only got two verses that we're going to be looking at this morning, um, I've got it up on the screen for you to follow. And it says this, Jude Jude verse 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And may God add a blessing to his word for us each one this morning. You may have heard the comment from time to time when in discussion over a theological matter from someone or some people, something like this. Well, I'm not a theologian, but then they go on to give their theological opinion anyway. I'm sure you've heard that kind of comment. Well, that covering statement, for whatever reason it may be used, and you may have even used it yourself, is so false because every believer, whether you like it or not, is a theologian. You understand that? To some degree. But what we need to understand is that there are only two kinds of theologians. I'm talking about believers, genuine believers here. There are only two kinds of theologians, the good ones and the bad ones. And Jude makes it clear in verses 3 and 4 that he wants Christians, believers, us here this morning, sitting in the pews, to be good theologians. You got that? I wonder if you all think of yourself in that way, as a good theologian. Or do you think that theological matters are only for the professionals to nut out and to battle over and to, and to sort out? Or leave it to the professionals? Is that how you think? Well, let me ask you in a plainer term. Do you care greatly about the purity of biblical teaching in the church? I'll ask it again. Do you care greatly about the purity of biblical teaching in the church? Well, Jude, in this little section that we've read, it wants you to care greatly. And because this is the divinely inspired Word of God, it's very clear that God wants this of all of you as well, including myself. You see, caring about the purity of biblical teaching in the church, it's our personal responsibility, folks. Yes, the elders and the leaders of the church, they have extra responsibility, but it's the responsibility of every born-again believer. And we can gain this because this letter is written to who? Is it written to elders and, and to the pastors of the church? No, it's written to saints, every one of God's people. To those who are, what did Jude say at the beginning? To those who are called 
beloved and kept by God in Christ. That's who he's addressed this letter to. So that means to all the saints, some of us who are getting older and think, well, there's not much for me to do, well, you can care greatly for the purity of the biblical teaching in the church. Teenage believers to middle-aged, every single one of us are all called to contend earnestly for the faith once delivered. Every single one of us. It's our responsibility. In other words, we are all summoned to this important duty to know the faith and to care about it and to protect it in the church. And so this morning I wish to focus your attention on two main points in this very short passage. The first is on Jude's appeal, and that is that we give due diligence to caring for the truth by defending it. That's the first part. The second part is Jude's appeal to be aware of ongoing threats to the truth. Listen to this. Not from outside the church, but from within it. Okay, let's go to our first point. Be prepared to defend the faith in order to keep it. We see this in verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to, to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. You see, we see at the outset that Jude's intention of writing, as I said before, an encouraging letter. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to write an encouraging letter about what? About salvation, the common salvation, and all that salvation means to every believer. But that is hijacked somewhat. As we think about that, how good it is and how comforting it is and almost pleasurable it is to be encouraged and to hear preaching on the commonality that we all have in Jesus Christ through faith. Amen? To know what it is to be reconciled, to know what it is to be, as we had the other day, to be called last week, to be called and to be loved and to be, and to be kept by God. That's wonderful truth and don't get me wrong, we need it, okay? We need it. But sometimes... The common salvation, which we all love, it comes under fire. It comes under fire. It comes under fire from enemies of the faith and that needs to be dealt with immediately. So how do we respond to such issues? That is, when the faith is attacked and belittled by whoever well, when Jude hears about trouble in the assembly, you know what, he's deeply burdened. He's deeply burdened. And so out of sheer necessity, that's what the word he uses here, necessity, out of sheer necessity, such as his love for the truth, and we'll get to what the truth is a little bit later, such as his love for the truth, and might I say, for the ground and pillar of a truth, that which is the local assembly, you go back to Second Timothy for that, he, out of necessity, and under this burden of necessity, he writes out of a burdened heart and a caring heart to this church, to the assembly. Now, I wonder, let me ask you another question. Is that the strength of care that we all have for the wonderful truth of the gospel? Is it? Is that the strength of care we have for the local church? 
that out of necessity, Jude moves from one intention and goes to what is a priority when there's trouble in the camp. Is that the strength of care that we have for the truth and for the local assembly? I find myself that we can easily downplay many of these fundamental matters because we think in making ourselves heard and, and voicing our, what we believe the scriptures to teach on such matters, it, it might offend people or it'll bring in division or it might cause trouble so it's better to bury my head in the sand and say nothing. You've been there? I'm sure you have. Well, troubling matters in the church came to Jude's attention. By the way, he did not go looking for trouble. Some people do that, you know. They go looking for trouble. They've got trouble written all over their face. But trouble came to Jude's ears. So what does he do? He deals with it. He didn't stick his head in the sand, not Jude. Jude meets this trouble head on by deferring his original subject in the letter and then he appeals to the believers. And he appeals to you and I this morning as this is the inspired word of God. And he says you must personally contend for the faith. Okay, I've jumped ahead of myself here. Now, this word contend earnestly, I won't repeat the Greek word, but what the, we, get, we get our English word agonised from, so you've got some idea what it means. It has the idea of contesting continually and aptly struggling upon a matter. That's what it means, to contend earnestly. In other words, believers, Jude calls us to, believers need to develop the skill and the commitment and the knowledge of the faith in order to contest appropriately and compete with those who would berate the faith and attack it. You happy where you are with that? Someone attacked the faith? Could you contend earnestly for it? You're skilled enough? You spent time in the Word of God enough? This, of course, has many Christians shying away because we live in a day where people say things like, well, let's not get caught up in all that doctrine stuff or its details because as doctrine only divides. Let's unite and be together and just share the gospel. Let's forget about all the other stuff. Let's put aside doctrine for the sake of unity. You know, these are cliches and words that you would have heard. I don't have to repeat them, but I use them for explanation's sake and as we think about that might I say they are right to some extent doctrine does divide doctrine does divide it divides truth from error you see these kind of ideas of downplaying doctrine pervade the evangelical church today and as a result the very truth that Jude is speaking of here is compromised And what happens then is error creeps in and what happens then, individual believers are deceived. I came across this even yesterday. 
I felt really sorry for the person I was talking to because they were completely ignorant of, of so many of the, tr- of the truth and, and, I, and I, in my conversation I went back to the church and, and I saw the leaders of the church had compromised some fundamental truths here and what happens is believers are deceived and the scripture aptly says it right in Ephesians 4.14 14, they're blown about by every wind and doctrine. That's what happens. Also remember here, we are summoned to contend, not to be contentious. That's important. Some of us can be contentious, right? My wife often tells me that I have a contentious look on my face sometimes, and I do. I get too serious, you know. I I, I need to learn to lighten up a bit and uh, come across too heavy and always look like like I'm out for an argument, but I'm not really, but I've got to work on that. Not to be contentious. In other words, when facing off with ungodly men, it's not only what you say, but how you say it that counts. So what are we to be? What are we to? We're to contend earnestly. So what are we to seriously and appropriately struggle over? It says here in the text, for the faith. You see that? For the faith. Now the faith here is definitive. That's why it's got a the in front of it. T-H-E. It's not contend earnestly for faith. After all, a Muslim has faith. A Catholic has faith. Professing Christian has faith. Everyone has faith in something. An atheist has faith in his evolutionary process. doesn't say that. This faith doesn't refer to even a personal subjective trust, even if it is in Christ. It doesn't refer to that. The faith, the definitive faith here, refers to Christian doctrine. You got that? It refers to the apostles' teaching. It refers to Jesus' teaching that he passed on and taught to the twelve who became apostles. It refers to the divinely inspired doctrine given by God to the apostles. This is what it refers to. This is what the faith is. This is what Luke wrote about in Acts 2, 42, on how the early believers, what were they known for? They continually devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching. There, that's the faith. So Jude wants the saints to cling to this faith and to contend for this faith that is the apostles' teaching, the body of Christian doctrine. In other words, we are called to contend or defend a body of truth, can I call it? A body of truth. I was thinking about that this morning when we sung Martin Luther's song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Oh wow, he was right in amongst the defending of it. That whole hymn is full of it. And how Satan is out there and, and he's all the time busy and, and attacks, attacks, attacks. But he that, is greater, he, he that is within it is greater than he without, right? But we as believers are called to defend. And Martin Luther and many of the early reformers were called to do this literally and gave their lives at the stake and other horrible deaths because, you know what? They did exactly what we're called to do here. Defender of the faith. I think we've lost some of that in our evangelical church today. Not that I'm wishing persecution so that we would be dying at stakes or anything like that, but even we seem to have lost it in so many smaller matters 
We'd rather have muddy waters than clear waters when it comes to Christian doctrine. This body of truth is that which constitutes the revealed gospel. You hear that? This body of truth is that which constitutes the real gospel. And that's what the, the reformers were all about. If we want to go back to see some clarity in historical times in the historical church of, of what this meant. The gospel had become so muddied and so unclear with the organisational church of the day that men like Luther and Calvin and, and, and many others in and around that 1516, even right into the 1700s, they stood firm on the revealed gospel of the scriptures over and above the organised church's idea of how things should be. This is about defending God's objective truth in relation to what? In relation to our common salvation. You see that word right there in verse 3? He was going to write to you about our common salvation. That was a wonderful thing. You see, this is not about here whether we have a pre-trib view or a mid-trib view or a post-trib view or whether we baptised as a baby or whether we're baptised as an adult whether we're dipped or sprinkled this has got nothing this is not dealing with those matters okay as we all know and I know and I'm sure you know there are believers who hold to different ideas on some of these things and you know what just like you the beloved of God they're kept by God and they're being called by God and we can enjoy a wonderful fellowship with them over the common salvation that we enjoy. But here we are called to contend earnestly for the faith. That's the body of truth concerning our common salvation. This is the fundamental, so to speak, of the faith. And this was at risk in Jude's day, big time. The fundamentals of the gospel that bring about a common salvation. That common salvation is hinged around God's grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the word of God alone. There you have it. That's what it is. But to contend earnestly for it and keep it. Then we see another definitive aspect of this faith, this body of truth. It was once for all handed down to the saints. The Greek word here, once for all, carries with it the idea of something being thoroughly completed. And that completed thing will have ongoing and lasting results and will never need to be repeated for it to work. See what I mean? That's what this once for all has in the Greek one word. This is wonderful news, you know, folks. This is wonderful news. This body of truth concerning our common salvation was once handed over, was, in, was once in time and history completed and finalised. It had no need, it has no need to be refreshed, tweaked or altered. You got that? That's what this means. Once for all handed over. In other words, let's put some legs on this. Things like different cultural values and we have a few different cultures and ethnic groups in our congregation our very small congregation here this morning we have people from different countries we have people from different socio-economic backgrounds some have more than others political environments there are differences ethnic values we all know about these differences right we all know about these differences 
personal circumstances. That's a difference. Some can, go, can be going through severe turmoil in their lives. Others are not. Now, listen to this. None of those different issues should ever be allowed to alter, tweak or shift the faith that was once handed down to the saints. You get the picture? But what do we see? We were even told by our missiologists that in order to reach this group, in order to reach that group, in order to reach here, we've got to retweak the gospel. We've got to retweak the foundations, or the fundamentals. Over and over. But no, it's once, it's a common salvation. You see, the truth has been once for all given to us by God through the apostles. And be what it may, Nothing should ever interfere or move that. We are to be skilled and competent to contend earnestly for the faith which was once handed down to the saints. Well, are you skilled and competent enough to do that? That's the question, isn't it? I don't think any of us here would be able to say that we are 100% skilled and 100% competent and uh, etc. But are we on the roadway to doing that? We need to be. It's part of our sanctification process, by the way. And as we think about this once for all handed down to the saints, let me put this word in here as a footnote. Forget about the dreams and the visions and the audible voices in the night. There are any workings of the mind which are dodgy at best, or shonky, I should say. You see, because here we have the truth, that truth, the all-sufficient truth directly by God through his chosen apostles. Someone said recently, if you want to hear God speak audibly, you read your Bible aloud. We have the truth once for all and we're responsible to struggle and to defend it in order that it will not be lost. Not only to ourselves, but thinking of it, we can actually and ourselves, but we can go further for our families and our children, our spouses, but we even go further than that so that the assembly, the assembly will not lose the truth. And sad to say there are many churches that have lost the truth these days. All these fundamentals that we've been talking about have been shoved out the door because I've compromised and they want to go soft on this and they feel they need to be sensitive to this group and to that group and to whatever. Bad news. Second point, be prepared to defend the faith against those who attack it. We see this in verse 4. Warren Worsby once said, I was just reading in his little commentary there, he said, the Christian life is a battleground, not a playground. How true that is. Martin Luther sure knew that as I was singing that hymn before. It was a battleground to him. In some respect, it should be to each and every one of us. It is a battleground, not a playground. But so many of us, we just love being a Christian. We love the idea of being kept. We love the idea of God's grace. We love the idea of God's love. Love the idea of God being free. And we abuse the privilege by living how we like, how the flesh likes. You see, when it comes to ministry, it's much easier to be an encourager than a confronter of error and those who f might foist it in the local church. I know that. Much easier to be an encourager. 
But at the same time, I also know that I need to be, can I call myself from the Bible and call yourself, we need to be faithful watchmen. You ever heard of that? Go back to the Old Testament, some of the minor prophets was a watchman. Who was it? Was it Hosea or a watchman? I might be wrong there. We need to be faithful watchmen over the flock of God. I know that the enemy is lurking everywhere in a hundred different places. And a teacher, an apostate, as we have here, by the way, because this is what they're talking about, an apostate, is a, a false teacher, is a professing Christian, but not a real one. These guys that had slipped into the church in Jude's day, they were not real believers. They were imposters. They were false believers pretending to be the real deal. They may have professed to believe, but their profession wasn't genuine. These people do not persevere in the faith, as we made mention of last week. They turn away from the faith that was once handed down to the saints, and then they attack the faith, the very truth about our common salvation. They attack it. And folks, these men and women are a plenty today. And I am so thankful by God's grace, our church here at New Community Church has been protected. Has been protected thus far. But let me say, the walls of our homes and our private lives, they are so, so porous and vulnerable. Satan will never give up on the ways and means of attacking the faith. And you know what he does? He's doing it big time in the world. He will attack the home. He will attack marriages. He will attack the family unit. That's how he loves to do it in order to push his vile teaching into the local church. And it's happening in this day and age. And praise God, We have been protected from that. Blatant attacks on the faith once handed down to the saints. You know what? They're only a flick of a channel away. They're only an opening of a book away. They're they're only a, a reading of a blog site away. They are out there in numerous numbers. They invade the churches, seminaries, they invade mission fields. You know what? Satan always sows his tares among the wheat, according to Matthew 13, right? He doesn't just spit it out there. He always sows his his vile seed amongst the good seed, tares amongst the wheat. He does that by means of imposters. And to the naive... When these imposters write a book or when they put a blog site up there or or, or whatever they do or or when they they preach their their false gospel as televangelists who draw and may draw huge crowds to the naive, they are the real deal. That's the sad part. They are the real deal. Folks, as faithful watchmen, we must be never, ever off guard. You as husbands and wives and as mothers and fathers in your families and as people and as individuals and as sons and daughters of the living God in this church, we must never, ever be off guard. We must never slumber. We must be always ready to contend earnestly for the faith. In Jude's case, this was not a threat about to happen. 
This wasn't a threat about to happen. It, the enemy in Jude's day was a present reality in the church. It says here, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. It had already happened. Damage was being done. And so Jude wastes no time in identifying the enemy. He spells out to his readers what these people are all about and what they're like and what they do. And so Jude is saying here, here's why I'm writing to you, folks. Here's why I'm writing to you, he says. And let me just paraphrase this idea for you to understand. There are people in your congregation, says Jude, who have the name Christian, who say that their teaching is Christian, but they're leading you astray. They're teaching you false things. They're teaching you cheap grace. They're denying Jesus Christ that he is the only way, the only truth and the only life for salvation. This was happening in Jude's day, folks. And the very same thing, might I say, we may be protected from it within these walls and with our congregation, but the very same thing is imploding on the church at large and in local churches today, big time. Because there are men that have crept in. Or even, not necessarily, they don't have to be physically in the church, but their teaching invades the church, whether it be by a blog site or whether it be by books or whether it be by a plethora of other ways. It's imploding. I was just reading the other day, once a leading evangelist, evangelical, and um, uh, he, was, he wrote many books and he was kind of really in the emergent church which invaded the evangelical church big time and, and many are still there. And, and this particular person outrightly denied the penal substitution of Christ's death on the cross. In other words, he denied the fact that God would send his son to die on the cross as a substitute for sinners. He referred to God as, as kind of a, a, a murderer, as it were, if he did do that. He said, and the reason why I say this is because he said, it goes against the whole truth of God being love. These men are around and his teaching has damaged and ruined many. You see, what Paul said to the Ephesian believers, you'll remember this occasion, he was heading back to Jerusalem and he stopped on the coast there and he didn't go right to Ephesus but he stopped on the coast and, and, and down by the beach he called the elders to come and meet with him and he had a great session with them and at the end he warned them. Acts 20 and he said, I know that after my departure... Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away your disciples after them. The very thing that Paul said years and years before in Acts 20 was happening here in Jude's day. And it's still happening today. And so Jude reminds us of this. He says, look, there are godless persons already among you. They're subtle, so be on the lookout ungodly persons. And these godless persons, he says, they're pre-condemned by God. You notice that? Pre-condemned? Or it says here that they are marked out for this condemnation. So that's pre-condemned. They've already been condemned. In other words, God has passed his verdict on them long ago. As we think about that, 
we need to evaluate these imposters from God's perspective, right? Because how, how dare we pussyfoot and, and make allowances in any way and accommodate such enemies, enemies of God, all on the sake of, of, of love and, and tolerance. How dare we do that when God has marked them out and condemned them? Yes, they'll say what they're teaching is true and good and helpful. Yes, they'll, they'll sound convincing. And, and as I said before, they may even draw a crowd. But if what they say is not in accord with the apostles' teaching, if what they say is not in accord with Scripture about our common salvation, you need to be skilled enough to discern. You need to, be, you need to have the, the watchman's ears and eyes and be skilled enough to discern what they say and assign God's verdict of condemnation upon them yourself. You know, to say, no, they're bad news, I won't be going there and encourage and tell people the same, like Judas here. Don't listen to their own verdict that they place upon themselves because it'll probably be a rosy one. But notice two things that he says about, he says about what they're teaching. They turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and they deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that's what they say. I didn't put the last one up, sorry. In other words, they do two things. First of all, they use God's grace to, as an excuse. This is what the idea of licentiousness is. They use God's grace as an excuse to live a life indifferent, indifference in sin. And they, then they go out and, and they deny the truth in Scripture about the per person and work of Jesus Christ. Just like the gentleman I was speaking about before. Might I say he's condemned already. They may say things, oh, it doesn't matter how you live as long as you are sincere. You heard of that one? As long as you're sincere. It doesn't matter how you, how you live your life for God because... God's grace covers it all. A book was written by a leading evangelical some years ago about love winning all. Love wins. By an evangelical who was well received by many who stated that God loves us so much that no matter what we do, what we, what we don't do, whatever, whatever, his love will end and, and, and every single person that's ever been born on the whole earth will all be saved and all go to heaven because love wins. Error. They may sing, they say things that doesn't matter what you believe about Jesus as long as you're sincere because God's love for everyone wins the day in the end. Yes, these, these are the kind of things that we hear in our day from such men. And Jude says, what did Jude say? Both of these are practical deniers of Jesus Christ. They are practical deniers, denials of Jesus Christ. One denial denies the, 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 the result of his grace. God's grace, what's the result of God's grace? In our lives, spiritual and practical holiness. Okay? We've been called, we've been set apart by God, and He's left us here for a purpose so that we might grow in holiness practically. And so that's a result of God's grace. And the other denies the Lordship of the person of Jesus Christ. And the Lordship of Jesus Christ, might I say, is absolutely essential 
an essential part of the perfecting work of God's saving grace. In other words, when a person is genuinely saved, they will grow in God's grace and they will come to understand and they will love the Lord more and more and they will be more and more like the Lord and they will acknowledge him more and more as Lord and Master. That's what God's grace in a person's life does. It's not a matter of just, okay, yeah, I'll sign a card, I'll, I'll make a decision for Christ and then carry on and, and live how I like. No, no, no. That's not how it is. And so Jude urges us here to contend for the faith once handed down, once for all handed down to the saints. My dear people, praise the Lord, we do not have such people infiltrating our assembly as such. But as I said, we need to be faithful watchmen because... So much error is literally at our fingertips these days, literally. They are out there aplenty. Each one of us need to be discerning and skilled in what? Skilled in homiletics? No. Skilled in apologetics? Not necessarily. Skilled in all the other disciplines that you might learn at Barbox College or, or a seminary or, or whatever. Skilled at writing theological books? No. You need to be skilled in the truth once handed down to the saints. Why? Because what you don't know, listen to this, can really hurt you. You see, ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance of the truth is a severe danger to your own soul and to the souls of others. You see, theology does matter. And false teaching can destroy souls and lives. Let us be those who care greatly about the purity of biblical teaching in the church. See, what happened in Jude's day is happening at a rapid rate and, might I say, a more subtle way in our day. Learn the truth, know the truth, love the truth so that you're able to defend the truth about our common salvation once handed down to the saints. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, what a joy it is to revel in the fact that you have given us the truth. We know well what Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. And no person, no man comes unto the Father except by me. And so, Father, that truth by many religions and many denominations and churches is being compromised and done away with and belittled and called all sorts of politically incorrect names. But, Lord, you have given us the truth in your word once for all. And though coming from different backgrounds and different circumstances, Lord, this truth is for everyone. It's the same truth. So, Lord, help us to defend it. Help us to be men and women of God who will discipline ourselves so that we can study the truth and to become more discerning for our, not only for ourselves, but for our families and for the church. May we have impressed upon us the great need to care greatly for the purity of the teaching in the church. So help us in this, we pray. Part us with your blessing. 
And we thank you for all your grace and goodness and mercy, for keeping us, for calling us, and for loving us. So, Father, we give thanks in the wonderful name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.